Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, from Going West 2017, join award-winning journalist Diana Wichtel as she takes Steve Braunius driving to Treblinka to search for her long-lost father. Hello everyone. Uh, and welcome to the uh, first session of the 2017 Going West Literary Festival, held for the first time in Henderson, on the occasion of Diana Wichtel's first book, Driving to Treblinka, which I can confidently and emphatically and jealously state is the best New Zealand book of non-fiction published this year. My name is Steve Braunius, and it's my pleasure to share the stage with a dear friend and a writer who I basically regard as a genius. That's a common view. That's a common view, of course, shared by so many readers of The Listener, where Diana has worked since 1984. I well remember the impact of her early work in the magazine. Here was someone so wildly original and so wildly funny that it was like there was a bright light over every page that she wrote. It's still the case, and she still somehow manages to come up with gags and zingers week after week (laughs) in her celebrated TV review column. Now, some say her cruelty stunned Paul Holmes's growth. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, I remember how he used to hop up and down on his little feet at the very mention of her name. (laughs) He was like a prized steer who Diana branded with her endless jokes at his expense. There are witty people who are only ever merely witty and nothing else, and therefore quite stupid and vapid and facile. Such people become stand-up comedians. Diana uses wit as a kind of racetrack that keeps the story moving, but beneath it is an intellectual foundation which includes the rare quality of wisdom. There is a depth depth and understanding to everything she writes, but most everything she writes at the listener is between 700 and 3,000 words, and many of us have wondered when she would apply her mind to a subject that demanded a book, Driving to Treblinka is that book, and the subject is perhaps the ultimate test of depth and understanding and wisdom, the Holocaust. Hitler's final solution moves behind or in front of every sentence in Driving to Treblinka. It's a family memoir of sorts. It's about her father, Ben Wichtel, a Polish Jew who was rounded up by the Nazis and jumped to safety from a train. Diana knew something of her dad's story and not much more as a little girl growing up in Canada. Her mum was a Kiwi. The family immigrated to New Zealand in the 1960s, but Ben stayed behind and Ben suffered and Ben became a kind of ghost, alive, then dead, his story barely remembered. That's the thing about life, it just gets on with it. But history is a way of creeping up on you and making demands and driving to Treblinka is a record of Diana's journey to the past. It is profoundly moving. It shook me to tears and it will shake you to tears. It's beautifully written. It allows for a lot of black comedy. 
And it's a wonderfully told story from a writer who is really without parallel in this country. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Diana Wichita. <clears throat> Diana, we need to talk about Ben. We need to talk about your dad. Uh, can you tell us something about your, uh, I mean, when you grow up, uh, first it was at least a happy family experience uh, in Canada. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, well, I think um, those early years were happy. There was, he played the piano and sang and uh, he worked six days a week. We didn't see a lot of him. But, um, yeah, but there was always this... Uh, kind of wariness in the house because he would explode, you know, have rages, and you never knew quite what would set it off, um, as is true in life, isn't it, really? You never, it's always a thing you don't see coming that, uh, that... So I, being the middle child, I think just kept my head down a lot, so in a way didn't get to know him as well as I probably really now, of course, wish I would, as is often the case again. What did he look like? What kind of face did he have? If he's in this room, can you describe him? <laughs> he, uh, well, I thought he was like, I loved to sit in the basement and watch old movies, 40s movies. So, you know, um, matinee idols. And he had his black hair slicked back. He was immaculately groomed in English textiles from his shop. Um, his, and he had a, one of those things you hang your clothes on at night, so the suit was always perfect. And, uh, but he was also very continental, so he had these kind of more blousy shirts than were worn. Um, and, he, you know, with um, things around them to hold the sleeves back and, uh, yes, all those words I'm losing now. <laughs> they hold your trousers up. Um, yeah, and um, so to me he was kind of glamorous, you know, and because he had that slight distance, because he was someone I approached carefully, um, how did he speak? This is a with a, a very thick accent, which yes. we made a great deal of fun of. And in the early years, you could do that. You know, he would say, "You know, what's going on in that house?" And we'd say, "Which house, Dad? Which house do you mean?" You know, sit behind the table, and um, you know, just little. He was, but on the other hand, I mean, he'd read everything. Dickens, you know, he was constantly trying to improve my reading, and. Uh, one of my huge regrets is I didn't get to tell him I did a master's paper in Dickens because he got me Pickwick papers when I was about nine and I was just like, no, no. And I went back to my stash of comics which were hidden in the cupboard. Um, so, yeah, there's so many things and he tried to make us listen. I remember making me sit through Rigoletto on the television one morning, which is a dreadful, oh, I don't know if people know the opera, but... <laughs> You know, the daughter ends up being stabbed by the father in a bag. Or so, you know, and I was thinking, what? You know, <laughs> nice choice, Dad. <laughs> it was funny you come up with that with that kind of metaphor because it reminds me of that strange and affecting game that you played with your dad at the back door and you write about in the book. Can you tell us something about that? And yeah. because it seems so playful, but at once it's also terribly sad. Yeah. Well, he used to come home. I must have been really young, I, I, five, six around then and he would come home late so we would have eaten usually and his table the table would be set for him perfectly my mother had everything just right with the avocado and mashed egg and anchovies and his one shot of whiskey um he wasn't a drinker um but he liked his one shot of whiskey and so 
on a cold night, I remember he would come in the back door having parked the car, and I would make him go out again, and we'd muss up his hair, my sister and I. I seem to remember her being in on this too, and put his collar up. And, um, and then he had to go out and pre pretend to be a homeless wanderer. And so we would open the door and invite him in and be kind and, you know, take his coat and take him to the table. Oops. And he somehow agreed to this. And I seem to remember doing it more than once. And it had a magic quality to me that I never really understood until um, years later when I wrote an essay, the first thing I ever wrote about family, an essay for a book called Mixed Blessings that was done by the second generation, Auckland's second generation group, a collection of our memories. And... Um, and it suddenly occurred to me that this was sort of playing out something about, because I knew a little about his story, but it was never talked about much. It was playing out some element of that story. Um, and then years later, which I mention in the book, I was online, as you do, Googling yourself, and um, I came across um, a professor in Maryland of trauma. He was a trauma expert, and he had taken this passage and written a paper about it. And he said that it was an example of trauma that, that trauma needed to be talked about. Parents needed to talk about it to their children, and often they didn't. And if they didn't, the child couldn't fully develop because you were always in the shadow of this unspoken thing that you hadn't dealt with. And that this was our way of having a transaction about what happened to him, and that he'd given me a great gift by playing this game, which I found... So you were talking yeah, about really. something without talking yes. about it. What yes. were you talking about? What was the metaphor for? I think we were talking about what happened to him, that he had been cast out um, and, you know, hunted um, and hidden in the woods, you know. And in those days, there was nobody kind to bring, bring him into the, uh, you know, into the warmth. So I think that's what I think. Who knows? I mean, really, what was really going on in my head? But I suspect there was something of that. Well, you, she's talking here about her dad's war. What, what did you know about Ben's war when you were a child? What did well, you know? Just a few vivid sentences, really, because I think what happened was there's this myth that they didn't, survivors didn't want to talk about it, and some really didn't want to talk about it. But I was reading um, about the fact that you know, often, and I know now, looking, reading back, that uh, people didn't want to hear it. It would get shut down. It was too much. It was embarrassing. It was, and it was barely talked about. And when he came to um, Canada, uh, he, you know, the word Holocaust wasn't even really being used. There was no kind of real definition for this, um, what had happened. So, you know, I think um, it was just little vivid snippets. And I think my mother used to shut it down fairly uh, don't upset your father kind of thing. So well, there, there was that one incident where you came in and you saw a photograph of his mum, is that right? Mm. What was and it? I asked my mother about it, yeah. Um, yes, he had one photograph of his mother. Um, that was the only family photograph we had, actually. And, um, and so she told me a little bit about it, but um, it was him, really. He... I remember him, t he either told me or he must have asked, and he just said, well, he jumped from a train. And I remember him saying, this is a point of interest when you're researching, that he rolled down a bank in the snow, and, you know, they always had guards on, on the trains to shoot people. So your chances of getting, of surviving that were very slight. But he um, said he lay there, and wait, he was with another man, but probably they landed 
far apart, but um, he waited to be shot, and he wasn't, so he got up and haired off into the forest, and that's how he survived. That's how I remember it. So we've been busy looking at which trains might have been on, you know, what, when he might have jumped, because a lot of the um, transports were in summer or whatever. But, it may, you know, memory is that thing, is that you don't know. Uh, that's what I think I remember. And what so, did he say to you when you asked who the photograph was? Um, <laughs> uh, well, it was that conversation was with my mother, so he didn't. I don't remember talking to him about my was his it your mother. Mum who yeah. said, this is your grandmother and she was killed by the Nazis yes, in the yes, war. Yes, yes, yes. And then you ran out to play. Yes, because you were five or whatever, yes. And he never said that, but he did say, you know, I ask questions. You think they're terrible. This is probably why people didn't want to talk about Because I said, well, how could you leave your mother behind? And, and he just, his answer really was just, you could, they would shoot you, was, was his answer to just about anything. Why did everyone line up? Why didn't they run away? And all the only answer I can really remember is they would shoot you, which is the truth of it, really. You know, your, your options were different kinds of dead, really. And he took mm. his. So I you, believe it's like a 1% chance or something of his survival, so. So you had that kind of mystery of where your dad was uh, in the war and what that experience was. And then you had the other mystery of what happened to him uh, when you packed up and came to New Zealand. Mm. Um, I suppose as a genre, the book could be described uh, as a grief memoir to some degree. Uh, more accurately, it's a kind of a suppressed uh, grief memoir. Tell us about coming out here and leaving Dad behind. What happened? Why did this happen? Well, things had been getting rocky. Um, financially, we were, you know, heading towards bankruptcy and we moved from the house where we had the happiest life to another house um, where things were really clearly going bad and then to a rented house. And um, he was increasingly ill although we didn't sort of realise it. It's funny, you just don't really realise what... But um, the family doctor, who was also a family friend, my mother told me, rang her and said, he's um, addicted to painkillers and you need to make him come into the office. He, you know, was clearly getting more and more ill. Um, so, you know, as a 13-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I remember just that we were suddenly told we were going to New Zealand. We were all going to New Zealand. And the Herald started arriving from New Zealand. And I remember turning through it and getting to the TV pages and seeing it started at 2 in the afternoon and finished at 10 with a prayer and saying, <laughs> I'm not going there. I'm simply not going there. But of course, we had no choice in the end. Um, and you know, I do seem to remember that these papers were being sent for my father to look for a job. So it seemed like he was genuinely coming. So it wasn't like something that I really took on board as a, as a parting. Well, that was the worst of it. So we all packed up. We had to get rid of the dog. The only weeping that went on in that house was over the damn dog, getting rid of the dog. Um, but, um, yeah, so we all packed up, and my father drove us out to the airport, and we said goodbye, but I thought, yes, we'll see him soon. And that was the last time I ever saw him. Um, there was some contact after that, but it got stranger and... and and that we were never told he wasn't coming, but, you know, it's just amazing what you get used to and you don't ask too many questions. 
So <coughs> we also have here the trauma of being sent the New Zealand Herald. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working my way through that. <laughs> it's the subject of the next book. <coughs> Driving away from John Rowan. <laughs> Don't get me into trouble here. <laughs> I wonder if you'd care to uh, read an excerpt, Diana, about, uh, about coming here, basically. Right. This is, um, forgive me, I'm not, I'm only just, this is my second time of ever talking aloud about any of this, so um, have patience. This is uh, from a chapter called On the Beach, and it's um, a little while after we've arrived in New Zealand. Once while working on this book, I wake up at dawn heartsick. The day before, I've been reading the only one of my father's letters we still have. It's to my sister. There's no moment in my life without thinking about you, he writes. I wish I could control it. I miss you all terrible. No kidding, it breaks my heart not to be able to see you all. No kidding, I can hear his voice. He adds, does Jeffrey, my little brother, remember me? Is he ever saying anything about me? I would like to know. My father's letters start to become strange, irrational. He's sending them to Cy and Molly, Molly's address in New Jersey, and they are sending them on. He seems to think we are there, living with them. I see the postmark and don't understand. Dad knows where we are, doesn't he? He saw us off on the plane to New Zealand. In my memory, the last phone call with my father always takes place on the beach, but of course it couldn't have. Now it occurs to me it might have been from a phone box by the beach. Maybe my mother didn't want Nana to know she was phoning him. Call me at Christmas, he may have said. Let me speak to the children. We were in the batch on Milford Beach when the crate seemed to materialize, an emissary from another dimension, the world that existed now only in dreams and in letters to Anne. I know it was around March 1965 because I wrote to Anne, typing with many crossings out, aren't I clever? We just got a lot of things sent from Vancouver, including this typewriter, hence this letter. There was our glass-topped mahogany coffee table. Why send a coffee table? There was a painting of a vase of roses in a gilded frame. My mother gilded everything she could get her hands on. <laughs> there was a New Haven mantel clock with a cherub and a vase painted with pastoral scenes. My father liked to go to auctions. There was also his crystal decanter and one of the little crystal shot glasses, just one. The heavy stopper of the decanter has since been broken and glued back together. I've never been able to bring myself to use it. Dad had packed just three volumes of a set of Encyclopedia Britannica he'd bought from a door-to-door -door salesman. Why only three? I remember my mother mentioning there were supposed to be three crates, but only one ever turned up. Perhaps the remaining volumes were mouldering with the rest of our stuff in a warehouse somewhere in Canada. I still have the painting of the roses. The other three paintings that came in the crate are long gone, including the faux Utrio street scene that decorated the wall of our flat in Mount Eden Road until someone stole it. A startlingly ugly painting of a grim old lady sitting in a chair with her hair pulled back in a bun was quickly dispatched. My mother couldn't stand it. In Vancouver, it had been banished to the rec room. She called it Whistler's mother and thought my father may have bought it because it reminded him of his mother. But in the only picture we have of Rosalia, her face is soft and pretty and she's smiling. Mum rapidly sold the old lady in the chair to a second-hand store in Milford. As I write, it occurs to me she must have known by then Dad wasn't coming to New Zealand or maybe told her to sell the painting. Not long afterwards, I was flicking through a copy of the New Zealand Women's Weekly when I saw a photograph of our grim old lady with a beaming new owner and the headline, Junk Shop Art Find. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mum got a couple of pounds for it. She was a child of the Depression. You did what you had to do. Years later, in the 90s, she would flog off another of the paintings, a large landscape of a path through the forest that reminded me of our family outings in Stanley Park. It took me a while to realize it was gone from the wall of the unit in Devonport, where she and Stu lived in their old age. I begged her to tell me if she was going to get rid of anything else from Vancouver. We would pay whatever she was offered. I tried not to sound cross, but she looked crestfallen, and I felt bad. When parents run from their history, they also obliterate the history of their children. There's a heartbreaking scene in Art Spiegelman's graphic novel, Mouse, an audacious rendering of the story of his father, Vladek, a Polish Auschwitz survivor. Art's mother, Anya, also a survivor, ultimately killed herself. Art asks his father to find the diaries she wrote about what she went through. Vladek finally admits he burned them after she died. These papers had too many memories. My mother, too, needed to make a clean start. She sold my father's paintings, threw away his letters, and the papers that would have told us where he was. But you can't so easily shake off the past. She didn't know that the things she needed to leave behind in order to survive were precisely the things that I needed to hang on to. How can I judge her for this? I wasn't facing up to things either. When I wrote to Anne, I said, we just got a lot of things sent. It took a careful syntactical contortion to avoid saying, my father sent some things. When tragedy was arriving, crated up from Vancouver, I was writing Record Corner for March 1965. Good night by Roy Orbison. You've lost that loving feeling, Scylla. I've fallen in love with a snowman, the lost work of little Millie Small. We went to see Scylla Black, Freddie and the Dreamers, and Sounds Incorporated. Dave Clark is coming soon, and there are rumors the Beatles are coming back. I sure hope so. I wasn't going to tell Anne. I thought my father had gone mad. Strange to think, isn't it, of the discarded mementos of pain and suffering and history in the op shops of Milford <laughs> and Henderson and everywhere else. Yes. Um, well, well, that's the thing, isn't it? This book is about two mysteries, one of Dad, Ben's war, and of Ben after you came to New Zealand. Um, you were talking to me the other day and you talked about how you seemed like an elusive sort of fellow, someone who was only half there. Is that how you think of him or did think of him rather? Yeah, well, I mean, literally that was the case because the history was, was gone. Everything was gone, you know, an entire family of over 100 apparently, according to my cousin Joe, um, was obliterated with almost not a trace. You know, for years I would as things came online. I remember the, the thrill of finding the name Wichtel once, you know, the first time of that, because they just were gone. And they went, died at Treblinka, most, they were murdered at Treblinka. And um, there wasn't the keeping of names, there wasn't the records for that place. You were dead within two hours of reaching there, uh, most people. And there was no liberation of that concentration camp. Um, so yes, he was elusive in that way. The story was, was, was just a mystery. And he was elusive as well because, you know, he, he, he could, his modes were to be dramatic and funny or angry. And then there was a sort of gray zone in between where you just sort of 
read the situation and wondered what the weather in the house was going to be today, you know. But, you know, we'd go on wonderful family outings, and if he had any money in his pocket, he wanted to spend it, and he would say, you know, the sky's the limit was his phrase, which meant you were going to get balloons, hot dogs, everything you asked for. Um, so there was that side too. Um, and, you know, I remember being impressed with him. Even as a young child, I was impressed. He could speak seven languages. He had read everything. He seemed to know everything. Um, so I think he was probably quite brilliant. He was musically very talented. He could pick up any instrument and play it. So in the early years, there was so much music, um, guitar, piano. Um, we were forced to sing along. We didn't mind when we were little um, with his favorite songs, which were like, um, oh, my papa, to me, you are so wonderful. <laughs> he liked <it. laughs> And beautiful brown eyes, which he used to sing to me. Um, and when we were little, I liked it. And then later on, we were like, dad, you know, please. Um, but in the later years, there was no piano. And I remember, I do remember the moment when they came to repossess or take away the piano. It had to be sold because things were on the downward. That seemed even then significant. Um, yeah. So, yes, elusive, definitely. And then years later, as I tried to discover anything about him, uh, he was just, you know, even though he'd come to, I couldn't find a death certificate, I couldn't find, you know, um, nationalization, immigration papers, anything. Fortunately, I've had brilliant help from a member of our family, uh, Jim Stevenson, my brother-in-law, who nudged me always in the right direction and did some amazing research. And so the book is also about what late, too late has been found, which is a lot um, about those things anyhow. Not so much about the war. One of the mysteries is semi-solved, um, I suppose, in the narrative of the book, and it is a, a narrative and you have to keep going along with it. It's not all set out in the first chapter. But you may have noticed that Diana rather, just sort of, well, not casually, but one of the sentences in her replies just then was she said, they were murdered in Treblinka. So what is the subject of the Holocaust, Diana? Is it, uh, it's not history, is it? <laughs> it's not history, is it? It's something which still goes on. It's a subject which is real. And I think you, she writes about in the book about going back to Poland. And I think you write about uh, going to Auschwitz and writing at, this is where my people were hunted. But the actual subject for a long time in this country at least, I dare say elsewhere, it's a, it's a conversation stopper, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think I learned that quite early. And <clears throat> not that I sort of brought it up ever, but you know, you'd have those conversations with people talking about their family backgrounds and you know, you'd come to your turn and, and people would just, yeah, um, it would stop the conversation in its tracks. So it always feels, felt slightly embarrassing, I suppose. Why is that? Why can't we talk about it? Well, yeah. Uh, was it too big? Yes. I mean, I'm still asking myself that question, and I have had these discussions. I've been like, you know, when a family member might be die in tragic circumstances, there might be quite a lot of things done, memorials, you know. Um, people might these days do a Facebook page or whatever, you know. But somehow when it's that many, you're supposed to, oh, well, or it's a war, you're supposed to get over it, basically, or not think, you know, um, it's not to be dwelt on so much. Yeah, and I've never fully understood that, the mechanics of that, mm. <laughs> how that works. But there, I also think, you know, it's, it's um, 
people, you do get that response, which is another Holocaust film. And you don't get that for other subjects. You don't get, you know, another film about Vietnam or another film about World War II or another film about World Gallipoli, do you? You don't, uh, mm. well, you might a little, but <laughs> well, there's, there's that remarkable sentiment uh, that you quote as a column in the uh, editorial, I think, in the New Zealand Herald, uh, which the uh, writer states, uh, anti-Semitism died the day they closed the uh, death camps. Almost inevitably written by John Rowan. <laughs> I wasn't going to name any what, names. What, what do we do with a sentiment like that? I mean, it's just barbaric and stupid and nonsensical, is it Steve, not? Steve, please. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, I think... Um, yeah, that comes in a chapter that I've called Shouting at the Newspaper. <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yes, it's incomprehensible to me, but um, it is not, it's, it would be an unremarked upon remark, or it was. This was a while back, early 2000s, but no. Uh, and I think it would be harder to make that statement currently. Well, maybe um, not, maybe not. Did you not write on the listener quite recently a... Uh, a kind of a review of um, a current affairs show on TV One, I guess, in which uh, that well-known intellectual Cameron Bennett uh, did a story on a chap called Willie Huber. Can you tell us about that? Because I just that was just breathtaking. Oh yeah, well it was just a little item, and and he was a uh, he is a uh, former SS uh, guy. He was very young when he went in, you know, nineteen or something, but. Um, and he's done a lot of work on Mount Hutt ski field. So it was kind of, he's 90-something, and it was a, a sort of heartwarming story. But it's just the little, what I call, slippage that happens all the time. There's a slippage. So he was sort of glowingly dis described as the ultimate survivor, and that didn't sit very well with me. <laughs> so, and there were just bits of slippage like that, which comes from minimizing, underplaying, not understanding. I don't think it's malicious, I don't think it's intended even, but it's just a lack of understanding. And we are a long way from these events here. We haven't got the big communities of, of um, people who experience these things or know about these things to near, near to first hand. Um, so, you know, I don't see it as malicious or anything, or, or mm. it's just disheartening. And we've had, you know, things that happen here Holocaust denial um, theses given an A plus. You know, we, we're not very good at it here, so. Um. Do you think maybe this plays into things that we're seeing at the moment? Uh, strange, isn't it, some way sometimes towns become, um, you just have to say the, the town and you know what that means, and I'm thinking of Charlottesville. Mm. What do you make of that? Well, again, it's not so much that these people are marching in the streets, because that's kind of always happened. It's the way it's being viewed is the disheartening thing. Um, and there's so much kind of strange discussion about, well, why worry about a few Nazis when um, there's so many other things we should be worrying about? You know, it's that thing that always happens. And I think, well, the, the very intelligent people saying these things don't seem to think that that might have been how people thought in the 30s. Oh, it's just a few lunatics marching in the street. Don't worry about it. And so the people standing up once again have to feel embarrassed about it. That's the dynamic that distresses me about it, I think, because mm. to stand up against it is somehow to be, oh, you're making a fuss. <laughs> what are you doing? And um, you, but you yourself, of course, were uh, so silent 
about this very subject and indeed about your dad. Mm. For a long time, you quote in your book talking to a friend who says to you, um, oh, uh, you never liked... Uh, I never wanted to, to mention your dad to you. And you say, why is that? And you, and you say, every time his name come up, you got upset. Mm. And I had never perceived myself, you know. I remember I always found my throat would sort of close up a little, but I thought I'd covered that really well, you know, and done a great job of appearing fine about it, but evidently not. So, yeah, yes. And I realised that, you know. I remember being sort of slightly bewildered that every time that happened, my voice would tremble. And it was completely involved, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I was so disconnected from the whole... I had my narrative of what happened, and I thought, yes, that's what happened. Um, but, uh, yeah, and my, you know, it's the next generations who really push you on this. My daughter and my niece saying, Mum, it's not normal not to know where your father is buried. It's just not, you know. And I said, well, it's just how it's been. And no, no, you have to find out. And then my grandson, Sam, a couple of years ago, the same thing happened. He was looking at my picture of my father in the, um, my bedroom, and in our bedroom, and he said, um, who's that? And I said, it's your, your great-grandfather, and his name was Ben, like your dad. And, um, and he said, what happened to him? And I found, I opened my mouth and I shut it again because I couldn't think how to tell him about it. Or, who is he? Did I really even know who he was to tell him who he was? So. Well, you know, that also raises a, raises the question, uh, who are you, you know? Exactly. You, 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 you said to me the other day, and we were talking about this, is that you thought for a, felt for a long time it was though you barely existed. Yeah, definitely. I think when, when you haven't got those things in place and you haven't, um, uh, uh, you know, learnt what you need to learn about the people who gave you life, you know, it is, it's very, you very much feel like you, you don't exist. And I think there were, there's also the two worlds, there's Canada and New Zealand, there was a door shut between them that was barely until very recent years opened for any length of time. It would be opened and then slammed shut again. Um, so yeah, it was like um, not existing. And when I read that trauma guy, I thought, yeah, um, you know, there's times when you just... And also, I think for a lot of people I've spoken to who come from my sort of family or other sorts with similar uh, things in the background, traumatic events or whatever, um, you feel like your things don't... can't possibly count against that, you know? What right have you to feel upset or, or depressed or whatever, you know. Um, mm. So there's all those things that kind of nullify your sense of who you are. Um, I like how you write at the end of the book that you talk about, um, you know, this is not an opportunity for personal growth. <laughs> no, and this I can is, vouch for that. This is not about closure. <laughs> uh, this is about a continuing guilt, isn't it? Can mm. you talk about, talk about that? Because I, I like the fact that... Um, you know, I sometimes feel so kind of cheated, perhaps, by, by uh, some grief memoirs, because it's like they, they tidy up the grief and they say, oh, well, it's gone now. And, and I think in my own experience and my understanding of life is that these kinds of pains and these kinds of griefs about your parents and about things which are dear to you should not go away and should not be resolved and should continue. What do you think of that? Yeah, but, the, you know, I hadn't thought that consciously, but it's just what happened. Um, 
you know, because people would say, oh, well, that, good to got that off your chest, now you've got closure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's not talk about it. <laughs> yeah, and, um, but I've had the opposite, I think. Far from closure, it's like everything has now, every story I thought I knew, everything I thought I knew, the whole narrative I've kind of got by on has gone, so you have to start again and build up a new one, and it's extremely taxing at this great age to be starting to do that. But, um, but yeah, and, and the guilt, because now that I know that what I thought had been the case, that, that I suppose in a sense my father had become beyond our reach, that not meaning to, he'd abandoned us, and to realise that we had abandoned him, and, and going back through things and realising that I didn't understand I could have written to him. Um, that's the worst, I think. Um, so you have to live with that. And yes, I was young, but uh, by the time I still could have possibly done something about it, I was 19. And we were living, hand, you know, there's all the excuses, living hand to mouth, and my mother was off with her new partner in Japan, and you know, we we're kind of students living on nothing, and there was no question of traveling. Um, but yeah, and I think, uh, I'm happy to live with that because that's, that's just how it was and I can't do anything else to remedy the situation, so. The best you can do is write a book. <laughs> and it's a, it's a kind of a, I don't say that vapidly, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful book as a, a kind of an offering uh, to Ben and um, to terrible events which happened. Um, on that cheerful note, <laughs> Uh, I would like to ask whether anyone has any questions uh, that they would like to ask of Diana, uh, perhaps based on their own experience, or anything that she said which is, um, makes anyone curious that they would like to know more. Is there any questions out there? Uh, I think we have a chap over here, Mark, who has uh, who's come armed right. with a microphone. I will come your way with a mic. Just raise your hand if you do. Um, Diana, it's funny, really. Uh, you know, we've known each other all this all this time, and uh, we've both been aware that we're the uh, children of men who experienced Europe in the 1940s. And you, indeed, were uh, terribly fond of my uh, dad, who came out from Austria. Um, I didn't know about your dad because you didn't say and it wasn't a subject that seemed to be something you wanted to promote. Um, and the terrible truth now that I do know about your dad is that uh, your dad and my dad were, so to speak, on different sides of the, uh, of the argument, of the fence, and that your dad uh, was a victim of what happened and my dad would have probably joyously participated uh, in that. Um, you met him. What do you think of that now? Yeah. Well, I mean, it struck me again. It's one of those things that doesn't strike you at the time somehow. Um, but he was a lovely, charming Austrian. And I was always attracted to European fathers, you know. Because, <laughs> you know, so I wanted to talk to him. Um, and we chit-chatted. I think I might have just mentioned something about my father being from Poland, but I think that quickly got went, went got nowhere. That got, went nowhere. Got shut down. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember you writing about him because he got interned on Soames Island, didn't he? And uh, but you weren't 
really talking fully about that side of things, were you either? It's interesting. <clears throat> no, no. Uh, another thing that we have in common is that we both have uh, official documents which record our father's experiences. Um, Diana talks about the official documents which record Ben in a completely different context and the documentation kept on my father is held at National Library and it's by, uh, it was maintained by the uh, Defence Force and it talks about uh, Johann Braunius as an uh, interned prisoner of war and some of the views that he held. Okay. Mark, have you, we you have a question here. here are you? Oh. <clears throat> Hi, Diana. Congratulations. Um, I'm interested in that um, entitlement to write the book, how your family and how you felt about uh, speaking and writing about your family history and your entitlement to do that given you have other family members who may not share your perspective. Has that been hard? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about that? Because I'm the same, you know. Oh, yeah. Very hard. I mean, that's the hardest thing about it. And and I'm actually at that stage. I think being a journalist, you don't, you couldn't be a journalist who think about people reading it somehow. You just write it and put it out there. And then it's gone in a week, luckily, anyhow. But this has been quite different. Yeah. Yes. And where possible, I talked to family members. And many did speak to me for the book. Um, but inevitably, there are sensitivities. And inevitably, you get things wrong. And people get upset. And yeah, um, it's very hard. And I, there have been moments where I thought, I shouldn't have done it, but um, at the moment, I'm still thinking it was a good thing to do, but yeah, it's not easy. Um, I know several pe people I've spoken to have chosen to do fiction rather than um, a memoir, but that's not always a guarantee either. I've spoken to people who have had people say, well, that's, that character is me and I don't like it, you know, so. Um, Morning, Diana. I'm sure that lots of us will be dashing straight out to the book sales counter to be purchasing a copy of this book, which sounds so good. Thank you. I'm just curious. Um, I've spoken to quite a few people who've gone on what you might call ancestral journeys, and they fetch up in a country on the far side of the planet, and though they've never been there before, something about it gels with them, or they feel they kind of... You know, there's a moment, there are moments when they feel they belong. Did you have any of those moments or did it just feel like a totally alien environment to you? Yeah, well, I went twice. We went twice and I had two different experiences. The first time I remember arriving at the airport and, and physically feeling I'm putting my f feet on the soil, which to me felt like a graveyard, blood soaked from, you know. And I think I... I Barely spoke to people. We just went around and looked at things, and I didn't really um, try to interact. And it was, you know, we went to Krakow, where they have this revival of Jewishness, but not many Jews, and it's all kind of weird. Um, and they have little Jewish figures that they sell that are quite stereotypical and disturbing. And uh, so my my experience wasn't great. But then we went back again. Um, and we went to Treblinka that time. Um, and then we went back again and we had a guide who had a little bit of a Jewish heritage. And I spoke to people and spoke to a righteous Gentile a guy who was a young guy when his parents, his mother helped him save a school friend. So I got a very different experience. And I think by the end of it, I did feel 
um, less alienated. And I do want to go back. I definitely do want to go back. And you realise everything's more complicated than you think it is. That was a really great question. Do we, do we have another one, Mark? Um, oh, I don't think we have time for one. Sorry, Steve. Sorry? Maybe one more. We're done. We're, we're done? <laughs> oh, there we go. Diana says we're um, done. My, my last question to you, Diana, is that uh, did you by any chance keep the decanter and the shot glass that you write about? Oh, yes. Oh, my God, really? Have you got it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the rose picture, the portrait's up above my fireplace. And, um, yeah, so quite a few things stuffed into that little room, that, <laughs> an odd assortment. Um, because after my mother died, uh, I was my brother was in Canada and my sister was moving, and so I'm sort of keeping them for the family. Those bits and pieces, those fragments that are still there. Yeah. Um, do you indeed raise a, a glass and that shot glass? I've to never bend? been able to bring myself to do that. Maybe I will after this. I don't know. <laughs> the official documentation that I referred to, and it doesn't really give it away. It's not really a spoiler. Uh, as a package Diana received from uh, a psychiatric institution in Canada. Uh, it's one of several pieces of literature which are really important to this book. There's a letter uh, which Diana referred to in her excerpt before, the one remaining letter from her dad. And there's also a reference to a book some of you may have read when you were uh, younger, Exodus by Leon Uris and its strange sort of uh, impact it had on us and telling us about the Holocaust. Um, so there's a, a lot of literature in this book. She makes literature of it. She makes literature of the search, which hasn't ended. Uh, it's a really beautiful book. I thoroughly commend it. I laugh sometimes when I think about the claims of our professional historians and biographers, they can't fucking write most of them. This person is just such a great writer. I thoroughly commend you get her book. Diana will be signing it outside right now. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.